This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. And if you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter. After taking a brief break last week when we had a guest speaker in, my buddy Mike Anderson, uh, it was great to have him. We are now picking up our series again in First Peter, uh, and we're going to be in it uh, to win it. We're going to be in it till the end of uh, end of the, the month here, and we're going to be looking to close up then. Uh, if you are new to us, the book of First Peter, just to let you know what's going on here, it, it's a book about how followers of Jesus, his disciples, we are to think about ourselves as exiles here on earth. Uh, Followers of Jesus are not to think about this world as our true home, but rather as a place that we are passing through on our way home to go be with Jesus. We're not from here. We are just passing through here. But we are not meant to pass by here. We have seen throughout this letter that there are things that God wants to do in us and through us as we journey in this life. This morning we're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And I want to get us ready to read this text by telling you a, a story that I think illustrates uh, what we're going to get into this morning. When I was 15 years old, my family went on a vacation to Florida, a few blocks away from the beach. And one morning I got up early to go swimming by myself. I got, I got to the beach and there were those signs out that said, strong current, do not swim. Um, now, mind you, I was 15 years old, and if you remember what it's like being 15, or maybe some of you here are 15, you know that 15-year-olds are invincible. Uh, there's nothing that can go wrong. There, there's no danger to ever fear. Uh, nothing could ever happen to you uh, when you're a teenager. And so I totally blew past those signs, jumped in the water, and just started to swim. And I'm enjoying myself. I'm a pretty strong swimmer, so I was going as hard as I could. And after a bit, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm really far out. Um, and actually, I'll be honest, I began to get a little nervous uh, I'm like, this is where the big fish swim. And uh, I'm not necessarily scared of sharks, but I don't really want to meet any. And so I, I turn around and start heading back to shore. And that's when I realized that no matter how strong I began to swim towards the shore, I only continued to go further and further out to sea. I was caught in what's known as a riptide, where, where the current going out is greater than the current going in. And so I'm swimming and I'm beginning to get tired. My arms are beginning to fatigue. And I'm like, I think this is it. I think this is how I go out. It's going to be a watery grave for Jeff Betcher. Over my tombstone will read, he died young and he died dumb. Right? Like, I, I just, I thought, I, thought, I thought that this was my end. But then I remembered what my dad had told me about getting caught in riptide. My dad, I don't know if your dad did this. My dad actually regularly sat me down and gave me, like, life survival advice I think because he knew he was raising an idiot, and so it was like necessary to do. And and so one of the things he had told me is, hey, if you ever get caught in a riptide, don't just swim towards the shore. you got to swim diagonally to get out of the current, so then you can swim towards the shore. If you just swim towards the shore, you're going to get caught in that current, you'll never get out. You have have to get your way out of the current in order to be able to then swim in. And so obviously I remember that advice, and by the grace of God, I didn't die, uh, and so I'm here today. Um, This morning... Uh, I tell you that story to say this, that this morning our text is going to talk about some oppositions that we can face in life, some currents, if you will, that want to take us away from a rich spiritual life with God. 
And if we're not aware of these adverse currents, then like me, who is just happily swimming along, we can get swimming along in life and not realize that we're getting further and further away from God. Our text today is going to talk about the currents of opposition and how to get out of them, how to swim in a different direction so that we can actually then draw near to the Lord. And so I've entitled this morning's sermon, Overcoming Opposition. Overcoming Opposition. Let's read together in God's Word, First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 7. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. May He be honored as we read it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For a time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. All glory be to Christ. I think we can break up our study of this text into three points this morning. We're going to take some time to look at the opposition we face. Then we're going to see the Savior we have. And then finally, the way we fight. The opposition we face, the Savior we have, and the way we fight. First, the opposition we face. Peter makes his intent here really clear right at the outset. In verse 1, he says, arm yourselves. The picture here is that of going into a battle, and you need to get strapped up before you go into the fight. There are times where I have to walk into different dangerous parts of our city, and I don't carry a weapon, uh, but I do go in with what's known as Philadelphia brass knuckles. You know what those are, right? You got your keys, and in between your key, you're holding them in between your fists, right? You're just ready to go in case something happens. You know, if you know that you're walking into danger, it is wise to prepare yourself for that danger. That's what Peter is saying here. There is danger that we need to be ready for. What is this danger? What is this opposition that we should arm ourselves against? Well, verse 2 tells us that it is living in the passions of the flesh instead of living for the will of God. That's what we are fighting against. Passions of the flesh is saying, what I want is what I should do. I'm going to be ruled by the trinity of me, myself, and I. I am my own master. And and if we live that way, then regardless of whether we say whether we believe in God or not, the reality is we're living as if we're the gods of our own lives. We're we're living as if we're only answerable to him, to, to ourselves. We're living as if we're in charge, not him. This is living according to our passions, our desires, instead of living to how we've been designed, which is to live according to his will. We, 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 we elevate our desires over God's design. 
And that is, that is what we're fighting against. And Peter goes on to give some examples of how our passions can rule us instead of God's will for us. In verse 3, he talks about sensuality. Sensuality is taking God's good gift of sex and twisting it to suit our own purposes. God created sex. It was his idea. And he created it to be enjoyed, to build intimacy in the context of marriage. In marriage, sex is a physical way to say, I'm committed to you. I, I give myself wholly and unreservedly to you. So inside of marriage, sex is beautiful and important. But outside marriage, sex can only perpetuate a lie. You are acting like you're giving yourself completely, but you're really only doing it just in one area. You're giving your body, but you're not willing to give your life. Right? You'll get your pleasure, but you won't give your commitment. And so you're joining yourself physically, but you're not willing to do it legally, spiritually, financially, and emotionally. And so however you might feel about it, sex outside of marriage is only about yourself and what you're getting out of it, not giving yourself fully as God intends. So, so that's actually the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. Right? That's being ruled by our passions and what we want instead of being ruled by God's will and what he wants. And, and when we're enthroned as the rulers of our lives, we are essentially saying, forget God, I'm going to do things my own way. And when we do that, we can just give ourselves to whatever kind of sensuality we want. That, that's just one example. Peter goes on to list several other examples. Several other examples that our desires can rule us instead of God's will for us. But the point is that all of these things, they displace God from his rightful place at the center of our lives and put ourselves instead as the center of our lives. And there are two forces here that Peter talks about that can lead us into this self-centered way of living. First is external pressure. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they're surprised we do not join them. So here's what's going on. When you don't give yourself to the passions of your flesh, the rest of the world that's living that way will be surprised that you're not doing the same thing as them. And guess what people do when you don't join them in what they're doing? We're told, they malign you. People don't like when we don't affirm what they are doing. Right? Accusations can begin to come against us. Why don't you support me? Right? Why are you against me? And our, tempta our temptation can be to compromise what God says in his word out of fear for what this person is now saying about us. See, we don't see God, but we do see people. And so it can be very easy for us to choose to displease God instead of displeasing people. We'd rather dishonor him than displease them. This is external pressure that can be put upon us. There's a pressure to conform to what the rest of the culture wants to celebrate. In high school, I went to a summer basketball camp, and I was one of the better players, so the popular kids kind of included me in the group, and they do what popular kids did. They make fun of people because uh, popular kids are some of the most insecure people in the world, and so they exist to make fun of others to, make, to feel better about themselves. And so they were doing that, and, uh, and I was not, at first, joining them in that. But then they began to make fun of me. And so I was feeling a pressure. And so instead of honoring God, I chose to please them. And I joined in their bad behavior. I joined in their meanness towards other people. And there was one person in particular that we uh, were very unkind with in our words and really just tore down in a way that I'm now uh, ashamed about. And then that week comes, my team actually won on Saturday the little 
competition. And so I roll up into church the next day feeling great about myself, you know, worshiping God, but really dreaming of my future in the MBA. And, um, you know, decided to visit our church for the first time that morning. That person we'd been making fun of and their family. And they walked in. And I literally locked eyes with them for a moment. It wasn't a big church, about a church this size. They saw me. They had a little conversation. They turned around and walked out. I bought shame on the name of Jesus because I had wanted to fit in. Youth, I'm sure that is a pressure that you daily feel. And adults, let's be honest, that's not something we grow out of, is it? What, what, what kind of gossip can you be tempted to participate in just talking about someone behind their back because you just don't want to feel left out of the conversation? What godly standards are you willing to compromise because you don't want to be that person and you'd rather just do what everyone else is doing? What, what are the external pressures that you can feel? We've got to be aware of those currents because if we're just going through life and going with the flow, if we allow ourselves to be controlled by what other people think or say, we'll end up very far away from God. There's a danger that comes from external pressure. And there's a danger that comes from internal temptation. So external pressure, and then there's internal temptation. Verse 2 tells us that we are to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter would not have to tell us to do that if that's what came naturally to us. No one's going to have to tell me after our church service today when I go home to eat lunch. Eating comes very naturally to me. Uh, I enjoy it. I don't need to be told to do it. I do it on my own volition, gladly and with joy in my heart. No one has to tell us to live according to our passions. That's just what comes naturally to us. No, no one has to tell us to get angry. No one has to tell us to be lustful or greedy or selfish. All that stuff is just in us. And it's what naturally comes out of us when we get squeezed. No one can make us do anything. People might provide a context of a source of temptation, but they're only hooking you to do something that you already want to do. When something doesn't go as I like, my temptation can be to get angry. It's an area that I struggle with. I can't blame my parents for that. I was raised in an angry household. I didn't get enough hugs from my dad, whatever it is. I can't blame my parents for that. I can't even blame the situation. I can't even blame that person because the Bible tells me in James chapter 1, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That situation might be tempting and our background might play into it, but at the end of the day, God dignifies us by saying we always have a choice. We are never victims of our past or victims of our situ present tempting situations. We have moral agency. We can make a choice. And sadly, because we can make a choice, sometimes we don't always make the right choice. Not because anyone's making us to make the wrong choice, but because we have these passions that exist in ourselves. Our, our sin comes from ourselves. Our, our passions come from our own desires. As we try to live for God, we need to understand there's a traitor in our own hearts that's trying to subvert us from doing that. Every day we wake up is a day where we have external pressure placed upon us and we have internal temptation living inside of us. And both of these things want us to take us away from, from the joy of living in 
the fullness and thriving of God's will. Right? But both of these things want to put a little, a little skirt on sin and make us chase after that instead of seeing that God's way is truly what is best and most satisfying. As we sang earlier this morning, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I have lots of regrets from following my desires. I have no regrets from ever following God's will. But we can have this external pressure and we can have this internal temptation to live according to the passions of our flesh. That's the opposition that we face. But praise God, there's a Savior that we have. So let's look at this. Let's look at the Savior that we have. Verse 1 tells us, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. The very first thing that Peter does, before he even talks about you need to arm yourself, is he reminds us of who has already fought for us, and his name is Jesus. We do not have a God who looks down on us and says, man, why are you struggling? Just get your act together. What's wrong with you? No, our God is the God who, when he looked down on us, saw us in our sin and came and put on human flesh so that he could suffer on our behalf. Jesus, if you think about it, he, he knows what it's like to be opposed, doesn't he? Jesus knows a little bit of something about external pressure. At the start of his ministry, the first person he has to face off with is Satan himself in the desert. Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the prince of darkness, pressuring him to sin against God the Father. He knows external pressure, and he knows internal temptation. He was sinless, but don't for a second think that doesn't mean he was never tempted to sin. No, our Bibles tell us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 18, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, as you are. Friends, you need to hear today, there's no temptation that you face where Jesus can't say to you, I know what that feels like. You might be embarrassed by what you struggle with. You might feel alone in that struggle because you're like, man, no one else struggles the same way I do. But that's not true. There's one who in every respect has been tempted as you are. And the effect that has upon him, Hebrews 4 tells us, is that he now sympathizes with us. He doesn't excuse our sin, but he has sympathy for our sin. He knows what it is like to feel tempted. And the good news is, he's done something about it. He's done something about it. When, when Peter says here in, 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 uh, that, Jesus has, that Christ has suffered in the flesh, we need to read that word suffering in the context of this whole letter. Because throughout this letter, what we've seen again and again is that whenever Peter's talking about Jesus' sufferings, he's always doing that in the context of Jesus' victory. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says that Jesus suffered being rejected by people, but his rejection was what God used to build the foundation of his work of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus suffered for our sins in his body on the cross 
so that through his death, our debt of death for our life of sin might be paid. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus suffered as the righteous for us, the unrighteous, so that through his suffering, he could bring us to God. Like again and again, Peter has been showing us that Jesus' suffering for us is the way that he has brought salvation to us. And so when we come to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we again hear about Jesus' suffering, Peter is not saying Jesus was defeated by his suffering. He was defeated by our sin. And so you know what? Just give up. You're going to be defeated too. No, he's saying you no longer have to live in the passions of your flesh, but you instead can choose to live for the will of God because Jesus suffered already for that sin you're being tempted with, and he has won victory. See, through Jesus' suffering of being tempted by the devil, through his suffering of being hated by the masses, through his suffering of having to resist sin again and again and again, and through his suffering of being made to be sin on the cross, and bear God's judgment as it was poured out upon him. Friends, through Jesus' suffering, he has defeated sin once and for all. He, he took sin's worst. He suffered the most. No one's ever suffered like Christ. And he didn't break, but he was victorious. And he showed the victory of his suffering by coming back to life for not even suffering death could stop Jesus. And so by directing us to the sufferings of Jesus, what Peter's reminding us is that we have a Savior who doesn't just call us to suffer. We have a Savior who has suffered for us and won. Jesus' suffering has beaten Satan, sin, and hell. And so if he can win over that, what this is setting us up to, to think is that if, he, if, he, if his suffering can accomplish all that, we arm ourselves with thinking about the Savior and what he has done for us. And if he has already done all that for us, then do we not think that he can overcome the external pressure that we feel and the internal temptation that we can face? What this text is telling us is that because of Jesus, every Christian can now say, I can. I, every Christian can now say, I can. Because of Jesus, you need to be able to understand this. Because of Jesus, you can live a life of sobriety. Because of Jesus, you can live a life of purity. Because of Jesus, you can respond with kindness instead of anger. Because of Jesus, you can be patient and forgiving. Because of Jesus, you can be truthful and not lie. Because of Jesus, you can be gracious and not judge. Because of Jesus, you can watch your tongue and not gossip or speak with corrupting talk. And because of Jesus, you can want to do these things. Because of Jesus, our hearts can be changed from being ruled by our own passions to instead want to live for the will of God. Friends, we need to hear this today. There are no sins that we struggle with that Jesus can't empower us to overcome. While we will never be sinless, by the grace of God, we can grow in sinning less. And any doubt about that is a denial of his power. We, we, we give ourselves only half a gospel if we only think about Jesus' death and how it forgives us. We need to understand, Jesus' death doesn't only forgive our sin, it empowers us to have victory over our sin. God is too much of a God to forgive us, and we just keep screwing up. Oh, he'll do that, and his love can extend beyond that. But guess what? There's good news. That's only half the story. 
the sin God forgives is also the sin that God empowers us to defeat as we look and live in his power. Friends, we might not be who we should be today, but by the power of Jesus, we do not have to be who we were yesterday. That, that, that is the hope of his power. There is no battle that we go through that, that he's not already won. Now, we need to understand, just because he has won, that does not mean that we still do not have to fight. This is not a let go and let God and just expect him to zap you and change you. I used to think that's how the Christian life worked. Right? Growing up, I go to this Christian youth camp every year, and it was a great time. Uh, but there was this continual pattern. I mean, it literally happened like five years in a row. I'd go, and the first few days, like, they were actually pretty bad. They were all about me. You know, I'm getting way too competitive in the games, be really unkind, and like, I don't know, I did break someone's face one time. That was an accident. But, um, but anyways, I got way too competitive in the games. I was a jerk to multiple people. I'd flirt with every single girl who'd even look my way. You know, but then the last night of camp would come, and there would be this big emotional appeal for kids to give their lives to Jesus. And maybe it was just being malnourished from eating camp food for a week. But I'd always feel this like emotional response, and I'd go forward, and I'd give my life to Christ yet again. You know, and then there'd be a time of testimony the next morning. I'd get up, and I'd be like, guys, I just want you to know, I'm a changed man. Man, never gonna sin again. And my friends would be like, clapping me, yeah, you know, I think God really got him this time. He's had a really good camp. I think this is it for Jeff, you know. Sin, sinless Jeff. This is, you know, and they, they'd be all supportive of me. And then, you know, maybe after a week, I'd be home and I'd be back to my own ways. Actually, just keep it real. Usually it was on the car ride home, but I'd be back to my own ways. <laughs> right? I'd be like, God, what's up? It didn't work. You didn't change me. Well, here's what we need to understand. Our victorious Savior has fought for us, but not to free us from the fight. He's fought for us so that we can be free to fight. He hasn't fought for us to free us from the fight. He's fought for us so that we can be free to fight. Jesus suffered so that we can then be armed to suffer. He won a victory so that we can be prepared to go to battle. I think we're given a great picture of this in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was this like massive giant who was the champion of the Philistines that were the enemies of Israel, right? And they come to fight against Israel and Goliath, you know, he steps out and he offers to go one-on-one -on -one with anyone. It's like, you know, who's willing to fight me? And the Israelites take one look of, uh, you know, at, at, at Goliath and they have, you know, what's the ancient equivalent of, of wetting their pants. You know, like they just go and they hide. They're terrified. And understandably so. Goliath was nine feet six inches, that makes Joel Embiid look tiny. He, he's this massive human being. His spearhead was 15 pounds. And, and your spear you had to be able to, to throw um, with accuracy about 50, 60 yards. So think about that. That's like Jalen Hurts being able to throw a Hail Mary pass with a sledgehammer and hit it accurately. All right. His armor weighed about 125 pounds. That was the average weight of a male Israelite during that time. You know, he, he looked, he's looking at the Israelites, and he's like, I got armor that weighs more than you. You know, he's this huge, massive person, and the Israelites want no piece of him. But David steps forward and says, I'll be a champion, and I'll fight him. And David walks out into the battlefield, and no one believed he could do it. But he walked out there, and through the power of God, he miraculously beat the giant. And when the Israelites saw David's victory, when they saw what God had done through him, how God had, through David, God had fought for them and won. If you remember that story, what happens? Those Israelites don't stay back and defeated and scared. 
as they see how God had won the battle, they pick up their swords and they go and fight and they rout out the Philistines. See, when you've been fought for and a victory has been won, that empowers you to now join in the fight. Friends, we have a champion who has fought for us. Jesus is our Savior who stepped forward and defeated sin, Satan, and death. He has won a great victory over a far bigger giant than Goliath. We've been fought for, but not so that we don't have to fight. We've been fought for so that we can be empowered to fight. And so when we see the Savior we have, we need to close by looking at the way we fight. The way we fight. Verse 1 says that whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. What this is saying is that when we choose to suffer instead of sin, we show that we value Jesus more than sin. When we choose to suffer instead of sin, we're saying that we'd rather suffer for Jesus than sin against Jesus. And so in that way, we cease from sin because we're no longer living under the authority of sin. We're no longer living under the sway of, this is what will bring me greater pleasure. No, we're saying, following Jesus, even if it hurts me, even if people do speak bad about me, even if there is a desire that I really would love to fulfill, but I can't, and we, in that way, suffer for it. We're saying that, no, 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 whatever suffering we might experience for following Christ, he's always worth it. And so in that way, we've ceased from thinking that sin is better. That's what he's saying. We've ceased from thinking that sin is better. We're living under the reality and truth that Jesus is better. But just because we aren't living under sin's authority anymore, that does not mean that we still do not have to, still do not have to reckon with sin's power. Sin has no authority over our life, but it can still be a powerful force in our lives. If a rhinoceros broke out of the Philly Zoo and for whatever reason rammed into our building today, anyone has a phobia of rhinoceroses, I'm just telling the story, this is not going to happen, don't be triggered right now, right? But this rhinoceros shows up in here. That rhinoceros would have zero authority, right? God's word has authority in our church. And so a rhinoceros, like, we're not going to let them make any decisions about anything, right? Rhinoceros would have zero authority. But it would have just a little bit of a power that we kind of have to take into account, wouldn't we? Like, we'd have to kind of figure out what to do with this rhinoceros that's running around in our sanctuary. Just because it has no authority doesn't mean it doesn't still have power. You need to understand, when we place our faith in Christ, sin no longer has authority over us. We are now living under the will of God. But that does not mean that we still do not have to reckon with sin's power. Oh, it can still be powerful. It can still be powerful, and we have to take it into account. And so here's, here's how we fight the power of sin. The power that can come through both external pressure that gets put upon us and the internal temptation that we can feel. Really, there's three things this text holds out to us. I'm going to go through them quickly. To fight, we need perspective, we need prayer, and we need people. We need perspective, we need prayer, and we need people. First, we need perspective. Verses 5 and 6 gives us an eternal perspective. Verse 5 gives us a warning that Jesus judges the living, and the dead. And verse 6 gives us the promise that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that salvation is in him, that gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now, some have taken this to want to say that when you die, you get the second chance. Whether it's purgatory or something like that, there's a second chance you get to believe in Jesus. But that's not what Jesus taught. And so in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about a man who dies uh, and that man says, hey, please send someone back to go talk to my family. The guy who died doesn't get a second chance. He just wants his family to know that, hey, once you die, that's it. 
he actually, Jesus tells a story to kind of draw attention that like, yeah, death is it. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 says it very clearly in verse 27. It's appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment. There's no, there's no second judgment. There's no second place we go to get judged after life. So what's going on here is that the judgment that, that Peter's talking about is not that there's a second judgment for the living and then another one for the dead, or that the gospel gets preached to the living and then the gospel gets back and gets preached to the dead. We have to remember that our Bibles are translations from the original languages in which they're written. Uh, and so Peter wrote this in what's known as ancient Corne Greek. And, and I think the actually is... There's different translations, and you have to make choices sometimes to translate different things. And this would be one of the examples. I actually think the translation I read from didn't, didn't get fully right. Uh, the, new Amer- the new international version, NIV, I think actually does a little bit better here. Um, and so this is how they translate. It says, but they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. All right, so, so here's, here's the nuance of that different that's going on here. It's saying that there's a judgment that extends even to those who are now dead. In the same way that there's good news, there's gospel that extends even for those who are now dead. It's saying that that the judgment of Jesus and that the forgiveness of Jesus don't apply to this life only. But they, they apply still to those who are now dead. They're true for the living and they're also continue to be true for those who have passed on. Theologian and commentator Dr. Karen Jobes helps us understand what's going on here by writing it this way. She says, Accountability after death was not widely taught in the pagan world. A pagan critic could reasonably question what good the gospel is, since it seems so restrictive in this life. And then the believer dies like everyone else. Peter, however, teaches that because people will be judged even after physical death against pagan expectations, The gospel message of forgiveness and judgment that has been preached to those who are now dead, whether they became believers or not, is still efficacious. Death does not invalidate either the promises or the warnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She's saying, even those who are now dead, they're still under either the judgment or forgiveness of the gospel. This life is not all that there is, but extends into eternity. And so here's the implication. We should live now for what will matter forever. We should live with an eternal perspective. When you are tempted to pick up your phone and look at pornography, that dishonors God by disrespecting a person made in his image and objectifying them as an object for your own pleasure. When that moment of temptation happens, what can help us fight is realizing that that moment of pleasure is less than the eternal joy of honoring God by doing what he says. See, when we have an eternal perspective, the cost-benefit analysis of sin always comes out in the negative. Our sin wants to tempt us to believe that it's no big deal. It wants to have us live a short-sighted, be-in-the-moment, just do what feels right now. But because Jesus has fought for us and won, through his power, we can have an eternal perspective and say that this temporary moment of sin is not greater than enjoying him. And so I'm putting down my phone and I'm choosing to walk in God's will in purity. As verse 3 says, the, the time that is past suffices for living in sin. We don't need to sin one more time just to get our last hurrah in. 
We don't, we don't need to take one more look. We don't need to take one more drink. We don't need to take one more hit. We don't need to have one more conversation about gossip. We don't need to do one more whatever. No, in light of eternity, your sin, it's been enough. You've, you've had enough. Start living now for what will matter for eternity. We fight with perspective. We fight with prayer. We fight with prayer. Verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Again, that's an eternal perspective. This world is not all there is. There's an end coming. Live now for what matters forever. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sin wants us to live without thinking. Sin wants us to not live with any kind of self-control. Sin does not want us to be sober-minded, clear-headed. It wants us just to give vent to whatever emotion we have and allow our emotions, our desires, our passions to lead us into whatever sin we want. But when we slow down to pray, you know what you have to do in order to pray? You have to think. That's why Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You can't be prayerful and uncontrollable at the same time. It can't happen. And so to pray is to bring ourselves under the control of God and ask for his help. Friends, if we want to battle sin, we need the help of God. In prayer is what brings God's help to us. If we go into battle without prayer, that's like going into a war zone armed with a water pistol. Right? You, you walk up and the enemy tank of temptation is bearing down on you, and there you are with your water pistol. I can do it. Pew, pew, go away. Pew, pew. You're like, no wonder you get rolled over. Prayer is us saying, hey, what is coming towards me is way more than I can handle myself. And so prayer is calling back to headquarters and calling in an airstrike and saying, I need you to come obliterate what's in front of me because I can't do this by, on my own. And so we pick up the phone and we pray for God to come and do something that we could never do in our own natural strength. Prayer is how we release God's power in our lives. Friends, we can't go through life alone. But the good news is God's only ever a prayer away. Which doesn't mean that we then pray and opposition goes away. Doesn't mean that the opposition will just go away. But it does mean that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God whose resurrection power can strengthen our weak wills to resist the temptation of sin's pull. We can say no to sin and yes to God because if he raised Christ from death to life, he can stop you from what you're doing in that moment right now. Sin wants to lie to us and say you can't be controlled. You have no choice. You have to give in to this. Friends, you place your faith in Christ that is a lie. You do not. The power that is in you is greater than whatever temptation is in front of you. You might have your own internal temptations going on, but guess what? There's something else in you that's come in you. That's the Spirit of God. And when you pray, man, God lights that Spirit on fire. And that can empower you to withstand the external pressure or the internal temptation you might feel. We fight with perspective. We fight with prayer. And finally, we fight with people. Not like in conflict, but like them on our side. We fight with people. That your in verse 7, when it says for the sake of your prayers, it's in the plural. Meaning Peter isn't talking to individuals. He's talking to individuals who are in a church community. The Christian life, friend, is not a life where we can possibly live alone. In chapter 5, Peter's going to talk 
about how Satan is a lion looking for people to devour. You know what a lion calls an antelope it sees out by itself? Lunch. We cannot battle sin by ourselves. We need to have the accountability and support of the church community. We're starting up our small groups again uh, in two weeks, um, and, uh, and we really want them to become a place where people can experience deep relationships and community, where there's vulnerability and confession and encouragement. I know sometimes I need correction. We want, we want them to be a place where people can call us out on things rather than let it slide because they love us too much than to let us just see us go go in our sin. They, they believe in what God can do through us more, more than whatever temptation we are currently going through. And so we want our small groups to be this kind of place where we can cultivate deep, spiritually life-giving relationships. And that's happened in pockets, and we praise God for that, but it has not happened consistently as we'd like. And so we really are working hard to make that everyone's experience. We need people who know us and who have our backs if we want to fight sin. And you know what? That takes some commitment from you. Because I can stand up here and talk about vulnerability as much as I want. It takes you willing to be vulnerable that actually makes a difference. I can talk about the, the need for relationships as much as I want. It takes you being willing to be like, hey, let's get together for coffee. I'm going to prioritize being at church on Sunday. I'm going to prioritize small groups. I get really concerned when we prioritize other things, not because I'm looking for any kind of attendance, but because spiritual isolation always leads to spiritual destruction. And so we can get away. I need some time. I need to take some me time. Listen, what the world calls self-care, the Bible calls spiritual oppression. (laughs) It takes vacations. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It takes some vacations. But if we start doing those things at the expense of being with God's people regularly and intentionally, we expose ourselves to danger. We need people in our lives, friends, which means we need to be vulnerable, which means we need to be, we don't just show up and immediately like open up in vulnerability. That actually, you know, if I meet you the first time, I'm not just going to start sharing my deepest, darkest secrets just to set that expectation. It takes some time to get to know people, to build that trust. And so time, intentionality, vulnerability, that's the recipe God uses to cook up the cake that we need to eat of spiritual life through relationship with one another. And so we want to be about this. We we, we want to be about being willing to show up and open up and to be known because we need people if we're going to experience Jesus together. Friends, Jesus has won victory over our sin, but not to free us from the fight. He's won victory over sin to free us for the fight. And so every day there's opposition that we face, whether it's through external pressure or our own internal temptations. But the good news of Jesus is that there's no opposition we face without the Savior that we have. And so in Him, in His power, we can fight with perspective, we can fight with prayer, and we can fight with people. And by His grace, while we'll never be sinless, we can grow in sinning less and experience more of the joy of living, not according to the passions of our flesh that leave us empty, but according to the will of God, which leads us into thriving and everlasting life. Let's bow our heads in prayer.